Meditators don't look very happy. (laughs) Can you turn it down just a little bit? But I know that's just perception and I have no clue what's going on. Tonight I want to talk about um, a word in Pali Sampajanya, which means usually when you talk about mindfulness, sati, it comes together with sampajanya. Sati sampajanya are often talked about together. And um, I want to speak about this as it's not a corollary, it's a support, it's kind of like a broader aspect of mindfulness, uh, just to kind of help round out uh, how we how we come to awakening. You know, just looking at all different angles. So last night when Sally spoke so beautifully about the transcendent dependent arising and that very kind of precise and subtle and specific way that the heart and mind can open up to freedom. And <clears throat> that's not just in retreat, of course, but that that specificity, that subtlety is certainly more accessible when we're in the silence of intensive practice. But sometimes, and I'm not saying this just because some people are leaving, I'm, this isn't a going home talk, this is a now talk. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening now in our practice, okay? <laughs> so sometimes though, um, as I talked about in generosity, all different aspects of the path are each in themselves a way of awakening. And so sometimes, uh, deep in retreat, we start to confuse mindfulness with the, the very narrow, focused, precise, magnified kind of attention that comes with deep stillness, with concentration. And often when that's not available, if by now you ever have a moment that that's not available, it means you failed. <laughs> but, so what I'm saying is second best. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So when that's not available, don't, isn't that what you think? Well, now I failed. I had it and now it's gone. So you do whatever, but you're kind of waiting until the goodies come back. And it's easy at times, and also when we leave, to think that mindfulness needs this, this really like highlighted, specific, narrow, focused, laser-like quality. And it doesn't. So mindfulness, the clear comprehension, is often how Sampajanya is translated. But it comes together, it's translated three different ways. Clear comprehension is kind of the classic one. But Tanisaru Bhikkhu translates Sampajanya as alertness. Sati and Sampajanya, it's, in the, it's used in the suttas often. And Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it, and I like that even better, as full awareness. Full awareness, and as, as uh, Tanisaru Bhikkhu describes it, coming together with mindfulness, be aware of what you're doing in the movements of the body and in the movements of the mind. Like knowing what you're doing, not just this tiny, this bare attention, yes, that's mindfulness. In the broader context, wise discernment, knowing what we're doing, that's clear comprehension. Okay, I wasn't going to say this, it's an embarrassing story, but it 
described, it gives a good example of the difference between kind of laser mindfulness lacking clear comprehension and how clear comprehension, full awareness is really necessary for understanding. Years ago, many years ago, I was on an intensive (laughs) retreat at IMS, one where I was really, really slowed down, noting every moment, very, very committed. And I was walking extremely slowly, noting every, you know, little subtle step into uh, an IMS. There's a, a coat room you walk through to get to the upper walking room that you walk through to get to the meditation hall. Those of you who've been there know how this is. So I was walking slowly through the coat room, and I had my Zafu. That's how long ago it was. I could sit on the Zafu. And I put it down. I'm noting the whole thing, taking off my shoes, picking up the Zafu. This is taking like five minutes, ten minutes. And then I turn, noting incredibly carefully. It so happens that right where the coat room goes to the upper walking room, there's three steps. I lived there. I lived there. This was not unfamiliar to me. I just walked right off that top step, (laughs) noting every moment, and fell flat on my face. I forgot to notice the bigger context. (laughs) There's steps. Hello. (laughs) This is a lack of sampajanya, (laughs) a lack of full awareness. You can see how it doesn't really get the whole picture, right? So... I just want to I've used this as a broad um, kind of template to talk about whatever I feel like talking about tonight. <laughs> um, but classically in the commentaries, you know, things are, are broken down to talk about. There's a, a very nice uh, grouping of four aspects of full awareness, of alertness that we, we need to notice. So I just want to, you know, use these as sort of a, an outline. And the first, I'll just name them, is full awareness or clear comprehension of the purpose, the motivation of one's actions. The second is um, full awareness of the suitability, the appropriateness, the broader context. The third is full awareness of the range, the domain of meditation, which basically means not abandoning your meditation in all, in during your daily activities. And the fourth is full awareness of non-delusion in life. Full awareness of non-delusion, which is described by Bhikkhu Bodhi as just being aware of the, the, um, that there's no abiding self. But it's really seeing how all aspects of life come to be shot through with non-delusion. So this is broad. Of course, they always give like the highest potential. But I just want to say how if we just give a little attention to each of these areas, it really deepens and broadens and stabilizes both our, our practice in retreat, out of retreat, and our understanding. So the first, um, full awareness, clear comprehension of the purpose, the motivation of one's actions. So we've talked a lot about intention. This is a, basically intention. So I don't have to describe that all because Guy did so clearly. Chaitana, that impulse that leads to speech, action, and even thought that comes together with whatever mental qualities it comes together with in a moment, that's the seed of karma. You remember that, right? Right? Whole talk on that, right? Remember we've talked about noticing that about to intention in our practice, right? Right. 
So I don't have to go through that. That, But the seed of that, this is so key. Mindfulness gives us the bare attention of mindfulness, the simple recognition quality of mindfulness gives us the tools to recognize the moment of intention. Full awareness is kind of, clear comprehension is bringing in, in, in really on two levels I'll talk about, of intention, that our willingness, our remembering that's mindfulness, to pay attention, to notice what's the motivation, why we're doing what we're doing, over and over to really bring this into a deep awareness is it's really key to purifying our heart and mind, to freeing our heart and mind from suffering. So, as, as Guy talked about, you're noticing that the same action can come from many different qualities of intention, right? So we can't judge someone's intentions by, their, by the results or by their actions, and even for ourselves, We may think we have the best intentions, but that doesn't mean that we can control the results of an action. Really, the results of actions are pretty much out of our control. What we can notice is the intention. And so it's like we start to bring our awareness into the subtlety of why we're doing what we're doing. And to do that, it takes interest, non-judging, and awareness. So the example I always give, it's very basic and simple, is if there's someone you care about and they've been doing something that's unskillful, that bugs you, that brings them suffering, they don't know it, and you really want to give them that feedback. Right? You can already see the many different ways that could play out. And much of what's the range of that comes from our intention in the moment, doesn't it? So in our mind, you can say, I really want to tell them because I love them and it's for their own good. That's a thought. But in the moment of saying it, it might be when they've just done it again and you're really bugged and you say, yeah, I'm just telling you this for your own good. Let's have a talk. I want to give you some feedback because I love you so much. (laughs) And the words are right, but they're not really conveying the true intention, are they? But the true intention... It leaks out. Nobody's fooled there. Maybe you're fooled. The person you're talking to, they're not fooled. <laughs> because we forget to check. But another time, you could really stop, see that intention, and not say it then, and wait and get in touch with metta, compassion for that person, and actually be feeling that, and sit down, and from the metta, you say it. You know, you can play with this. You can really see the difference. Another time, you may... Feel like it, you feel the metta, but you're completely oblivious to the circumstances of the person at that time. As if it's all about my intention, and this is where it moves out into suitability, the second one, which I'll talk about more later. But it's not just my intention's metta, it's completely overlooking the fact that the person just stumbled into the house from 12 hours of really difficult day at the office and people were on their case and they're totally exhausted and their dog just died. And you say, let me give you this feedback with all the metta in my heart. And somehow they can't hear it. You think, well, it's hopeless, they can't hear it. You know? There's, again, it's like me falling down the steps, kind of missing the big picture. Those are just simple examples, right? But you you get a sense of how the quality in mind that comes with the 
intention is really what's key. As Guy said when he talked about karma, that's what's the seed of karma, of wholesomeness, of unwholesomeness. And it's powerful. And even when we're not aware of it, that doesn't make it less powerful. It's, it's not, I don't, I don't want to say it's scary, but it's not something to be underestimated, the power of intention. I heard this, I was kind of half listening to the news, the BBC, a couple weeks ago, and I heard, I didn't get all the details, but I, 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 I think I got the main gist. This is a little scary to me. They said in the UK, the military was um, talking about the possibility of experimentation with, you know, those, dr- those drones they have that they fly and bomb people from a distance and they're flying them by, I don't know, computers or whatever. So, okay, that's bad enough. But they were uh, t- thinking about somehow beginning to experiment with drones that would respond to the operator's thoughts. Whoa. Yeah, whoa, exactly. Whoa. <laughs> So, you know, the person thinks, well, I didn't actually push a button to make it bomb, but I just had the thought, and the thing did it. Like, well, okay, I'm really hoping I heard that wrong, because that's really scary. And you can see how it would really be easy to feel, well, the thought just popped in my mind. I didn't really even want to do it, never mind. So it's uh, something to look at. But that's not to make us scared. It's not to make us afraid to see unwholesome intentions arise. In fact, and this is, again, still part of the the clear comprehension of motivation on the moment-to-moment level, is that this is where we want to look out of interest, out of what's really freeing, what brings us suffering, what brings us happiness, what brings people around us suffering, what brings people around us happiness. Hating ourselves and being afraid to see um, suffering intentions doesn't bring us or anybody else happiness. But the interest to look does. There's a very well-known sutta where the Buddha is talking to his son, Rahula, who uh, joined the order of monks as a novice when he was a young boy, about seven. And in this sutta, I thought I'd read I won't read it, I'll just paraphrase it where he's saying to Rahula, what is a mirror for? And that this is important. And he said, well, it's for reflection. And the Buddha says, yes, just so. And just like a mirror, what's really important is to reflect before actions of body, before actions of speech, before actions of mind. And he says that, and he goes through each one individually, starting with action, that before you do an act, well, maybe I will read just the the way he phrases it to make it more precise. When you wish to do an action with the body, reflect upon it thus. Would this action lead to my own affliction or to the afflictions of others or to the affliction of both? Is it an unwholesome action with painful consequences, painful results? When you reflect, if you know that it is painful, then you definitely shouldn't do it. But when you reflect, if you know this action would not lead to my own affliction or the affliction of others, it's a wholesome bodily action with pleasant consequences, with pleasant results, then you may do such an action. And then he goes on to say, because of course we don't always reflect before we do it. 
And he says, if you're in the middle of an action and you recognize you're in the middle of an action, reflect upon it in the same way as this action that I'm doing leading to my own affliction or the affliction of others. Notice it's my own affliction and or the affliction of others, not only the affliction of others. Sometimes we forget that we're also included. And sometimes we don't even notice what we're doing in the middle of it, right? So then he says, after you've done an action, reflect on, did it lead to my affliction, the affliction of others, the affliction of both, or not? And if it did lead to affliction, then he says you should um, uh, reveal it, lay it open to your teacher or to wise companions in the holy life. In other words, don't try to go high, well, I hope nobody saw me. You know, like lay it out and then try to refrain from such actions in the future. And same with actions of speech, same with actions of mind. Now, the mirror part is really important because he's not saying reflect on it, see that you're doing an action that might lead to your own affliction and then hate yourself, beat yourself up, beat your breast and tear your hair and say what a bad person I am. He just said, just notice it. Like a mirror reflects what's put in front of it. This is the quality of mindfulness, of sati, of recognizing just what's happening without judging, without aversion, without clinging, clear seeing. How else are we going to see what leads to our own affliction or the affliction of others? What leads to, not to affliction, but to pleasant circumstances for ourselves and others? Only by this this willingness, this interest to explore without any judging. That's how we learn, before, during, or after. So it comes to be really um, interesting, much more natural. We just keep on noticing what's the attitude in the mind. Does that sound familiar? This is exactly what this is. When we're doing something, before we're doing something, after, we just check, what's the attitude in the mind? Oh, I'm filled with aversion. Maybe this isn't the time to tell that person that incredibly important feedback. We start to notice that. We don't have to analyze it, but you can just start to tune in more and go, okay, there's aversion, not the time to do it. Not the time to do it. And so, as we begin to notice cause and effect, cause and effect... We, we don't look so much to what's going to happen if I do it, am I going to get the result I want? Because big picture, we never know. But we look to what's this speech, this thought, this action coming out of? Is it as clear as I can be? And then we start to see, as Ajahn Pasano says, we start to uh, nurture the appropriate causes for the results we're seeking. So if the result we're seeking, and this is uh, assuming we're, we're embracing wholesomeness, right? <laughs> we're assuming we're coming from a place of wanting to foster our own happiness and the happiness of others, our own wholesome heart and the wholesomeness of others. So if the result we're seeking, back to that simple example of giving someone some feedback because they're doing something that's bringing themselves suffering and me too suffering, all of us suffering. If without tuning into intention, the result we're seeking is just make them stop doing that thing. You might just go blat them over the head, you know, stop doing that, or I know I'm not going to be your friend, you know, blackmail, whatever, because you don't care what the motivation, you just want that thing to stop. But you're not tuned into the fact that that's leading to more suffering for both of you. 
But if we want to nurture the results we're seeking with the appropriate cause, then what we're really seeking is the happiness of that person, the well-being of both of us, out of a sense of caring, out of a sense of metta. So the appropriate cause for that is to speak out of a sense of metta, out of a sense of connection, out of a sense of caring. And then that person will hear it or they won't. They'll act on it or they won't. That's not in our control. So, this is kind of a big leap to make from a a small action, a small motivation in our mind, but my mind does make this leap. Um, So, I'll put it out there. But knowing in little actions of speech, body, and even thought when we have the choice, how our mind works, how we get lost in suffering and greed and wanting and negativity, how we can see that and not act on it. Knowing how the mind works is, is the cause that's going to nurture the effect of being able to live our lives in the world of not causing harm, of cultivating wisdom, of cultivating compassion. Okay, I'm making a leap. I'm assuming that's something that's interesting to you guys, to live in that way. Uh, well, no, I mean, I am making that assumption. But not everyone has that as a result that they seek. But just to say, I want to live in a compassionate way, but not pay attention to how and why I'm doing what I'm saying and doing, it doesn't work. It's sort of like the, um, the motivation of what I'm doing and saying is the result. It is destiny, really. So the leap I'm making is, and I've told this in, in other talks a couple of years ago when I was in, in Germany, I go every summer, I went to visit the, uh, the museum at Dachau, which had you know, been one of the um, concentration camps, very well set up museum. Um, and I won't go into the whole thing, but it, it was very well set up in a way with big kind of billboards and describing all different aspects of that whole period, all different people and all different walks of people who worked there, people who came there, different um, populations that uh, were incarcerated in Dachau, you know, different ethnic groups and gay people and um, different religions and different cultures and all kinds of stuff, different people who worked there, different things that went on there, people in the community. It was very, very broad-ranging. And they would, they would tell a story, but they would also usually then have one person, like a picture of one person. So if they were talking about Roma uh, that had been incarcerated, they might have a, a photograph of one person who was a Roma and their name and a little of their story. It made it personal. If they were talking about guards, they might have a photo of one guard in their story. And what that did for me was, you know, it just just shows us so many people involved in so many ways. I couldn't walk out of there and think, well, just a few really rotten eggs, really, really evil people did this. Vast amounts of people, vast amounts of people. And I couldn't walk out of there and think, well, if I'd been living in Germany, I wouldn't have had anything to do with it. I couldn't think that. You know, I really got the sense 
of how so many people that were incarcerated, people who once were incarcerated, some would act heroically, some would act um, cowardly, some would just mind their own business, some would help people, some would snitch on people, you know, all different ways. Same with the guards. Some were awful, some tried to be kind. Same with people in the community. Some knew nothing, some just did what they did and pretended to know nothing. All these different ways. And I thought, I don't know what I would do. You know, if my family was threatened, or I thought my family was threatened, or if I thought my life was threatened, or you really don't know. And I realized it was just normal people, and each little decision we make is a little decision we make. No one could really have imagined where that was going in 1933, you know? I mean, I can't even imagine it now, you know? How could no one could see where that was going? So everyone would make whatever little decision they would have to make in the schoolroom or in the teachers or if someone was taken away, do you say something about it? Do you pretend it didn't happen? Do you deny it? Do you, you know, talk to people? What do you do? If you feel your family is threatened, what do you do? And I, I saw how each little decision that's made, we do the best we can. You never know what the results are going to be and it could end up, you know, something like Dachau. And so it just was actually, it was a, one of many wake-up calls for me to recommit in a way. To, it, it deepened my faith in um, awakening, in the Buddha Dharma, in the power of uh, love, of awareness, to really pay attention to what's going on in my mind. I might say I would never do something like that. I don't have a clue. If I don't know... When my mind is reacting from fear, when I'm acting from fear, if I don't know how to be with aversion without acting from it, if I don't know how to be with a sense of wanting to blame people, wanting to put it all off on somebody else, if I didn't know how to be with that without acting on it, then I can't say, I'm going to do the good thing, I'm going to be the bodhisattva. I don't know. We have to really know how our mind and hearts are working, and we only know that by loving attention, by the courage it takes. That's what you guys are doing here, moment after moment, day after day. Those hard times, I've said it before, we've all said it, that's not the waste of time. That's where we're really learning, you know? Because stuff like that, that's not just Germany. Pick your country, pick anywhere in history in the last 200 years. It's just going to keep going back, you know? It seems to be that horrific things keep popping up in human society. And great, beautiful responses keep coming up in human hearts. So all we can do is really have that commitment, that caring, that trust, to keep looking in our own heart and mind. And not be afraid when we see, you know, aversion. Great! We see it. Not be afraid if we see hatred or fear or greed, you know. I mean, have you ever just, like with greed, just seen yourself want to just, for something stupid, like, I don't know, a piece of chocolate cake and there's only one left, you want to knock everybody in front of you in the way out to get that piece of chocolate cake? It's horrific. You know, I've seen my mind do it. Social shame is a good thing because it often keeps us from acting on it. I'm not saying it's wholesome, but it keeps us from acting. But so this sense of being willing to look, not just in the big things, but in the little things. This is what the Buddha was talking to Rahula about. It's just not about looking good. This is about freeing 
our heart and mind. I'll give you another simple little example. A friend of mine, she emailed me, oh, this is a good talk example, she said. I said, oh, yeah, you're right, it's a good talk example. We were, uh, earlier this retreat, down in the bookstore. We can go in the bookstore because we're not on retreat. (laughs) I don't even want to know how many of you have been down in the bookstore. But we checked. No, I don't know. Anyway, we were down there, this friend and I, and she helps there sometimes. So I was looking for a particular statue of a, that I remembered from last year, a small statue of a white tar I wanted to buy. And Marianne wasn't around, but my friend knows how there's these cabinets out in the, in, not in the bookstore, but where stuff is stored out in the meditation hall. And there's a secret magnet thing that you open. And she knew where that magnet thing was, somewhere buried in the offices. And she found it, and we're like, you know, going, opening all the doors and going through it all. And so finding the the uh, statue. So we did that. We found them. And there's a ton of them. And as she picked up uh, a different statue to get the one I wanted, it's one that had like the one she picked up had this little, I think it was Manjushri, it had this little sword and she just barely touched it and the sword snapped off. I just, oh, you know. And then I was putting one down and I, I mean, I really like touched it like that and the sword snapped off. They're like, oh. <laughs> now what? And like she said, just for a nanosecond, just for a fraction of a nanosecond, it comes into mind, this must happen all the time, and I didn't do it on purpose. Let's just put it back and close the door. <laughs> no one will know. Let's just put it back and close the door. <laughs> and I could see that in my mind, too. We're both like, oh, God, now do we have to buy this? <laughs> and it was so great, because just to see that, as soon as we saw it in our mind, it's like right away. There's the suffering, not even the suffering that would come from that, but the suffering of even just, even having the thought to act on it, you know? So immediately, no, no, we took it out, closed it, you know, went to Marianne's office, we're writing out a whole, you know, so, you know, we took care of it. And then Marianne came in, like she caught us like two little, you know, girls, she came in, what are you guys doing, you know? (laughs) And she said, oh yeah, that happens all the time, no problem, we just glue it back together and sell it half price. Like, oh, good, okay, that ended good. But just to see that little second in the mind, and that is what's so great to see, you know? Don't gloss over it. Be really happy to see it, because that's where the purification, that's where the, the choosing, you know, wholesomeness comes in, and there's a happiness from that. We're just lucky it ended up good, that we didn't have to buy it. It doesn't always end up good. It doesn't mean it ends up. Maybe you have to buy it. That's okay. So that's in the, in the like moment-to-moment aspect of motivation, of clear comprehension, full awareness of purpose, why we're doing what we're doing. There's also, especially... Um, Nyanapanakatera talks about this in his commentarial work, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, where he talks about motivation or um, as in a larger aspect, sort of our, our broader aspiration in life. It's a little bit, excuse me, sort of like what in the very first day of the retreat when you went around and spoke your intention for the retreat. But I would say in an even larger way than that, a sense of, um, your greater aspiration in life, your greater purpose, you know, and it can be very uh, useful. 
to clarify for yourself what that is. It said that without that, we tend to just go through life, even if we check in our moment-to-moment motivation and it's wholesome, but we can easily just kind of drift from one situation to another, you know. Well, this is okay, or maybe I'll do that, or this seems nice. And we don't really have a, a, a broader overarching um, focus, you could say. So it's said, the way Nanaponika describes it, that a sense of tuning into your broader purpose, your deepest aspiration, I would say, has the function in our life, not just in a moment, of collecting our dispersed energy. It's sort of like making priorities, you could put it that way. And then we can align our moment-to-moment decisions a bit with our broader, deeper aspiration. Now, this serves in all aspects of life. It doesn't necessarily have to do with Dhamma. It doesn't have to be wholesome. So just to give a, uh, a pretty obvious example, um, take professional athletes, which is like really far from any realm of personal experience that there could be. But I, really, I, I happen to really enjoy watching professional tennis. And uh, as I watch it over the years... And I, I read about um, some of the tennis players, the amount of um, that their whole life, from their time they're young, comes to be directed at playing professional tennis. You know, the, uh, I was reading the biography of Andre Agassi, which is quite interesting. He's an interesting guy. He's talking sometimes, you know, is forced by the parent or whatever, but from very young. The decisions of how you live your life, of what you do, are based on what's going to support you to keep on playing professional tennis. And a lot of these guys that didn't even finish high school, Andre didn't finish high school, which led him now to, to really use all his time and money to raise money for the school that he started in Las Vegas for underprivileged kids with the thing that every kid that goes there goes to college. You know, it's really a great thing he's doing. But... So he didn't finish high school because he goes to a tennis academy. And like just one example, even later in life, he's married, he has two kids, but he's still playing and he wants to play another couple of years, even though his body's getting old. And he says, everything I do, I have to kind of evaluate. I'm going to the beach with the kids. If I sit on the beach for an hour, how will that affect? You know, it'll affect my energy too much. I'll get too hot in the sun. I won't be able to have the energy to play tomorrow. So I don't go to the beach with the kids. What do you eat? How do you sleep? Do you go out to, at night? What do you do? Everything is focused on being able to keep on playing tennis. You know, It's huge commitment, huge renunciation. But because of that focus and then aligning your decisions with it, you're able to do all kinds of stuff you never would have thought you could do when we're just kind of drifting along in response. For example, sitting here for a month, when you first started, whenever you first started your practice, could you have imagined sitting here for a month? I mean, it's just, it, it was, and it wasn't possible at that time. So in whatever reason, that's become enough of an aspiration that you have made many choices in your life to support your being able to be here because that was important enough for you. You see what I mean? So, tuning into what really is your greatest aspiration, your deepest aspiration, I think to do that consciously 
is extremely important because it really can serve as a guideline, as a beacon, both here and in times in our choices we make in our daily life, you know. So I would advise, I was going to say do it now, but I think it takes more time. But I would say just take some time if you don't know or you're not sure. And just hold that question, let it settle. Not go write, you know, pages and pages about it. It's not so intellectual. It's like what really bubbles up from the depths. Just set the question. It may not come for a while or maybe you already know. And it could be something quite deep and profound and then your judging mind may say, oh no, that's not possible for me or I'm not good enough for that or whatever. Don't pay any attention to that. Because it'll be a feeling. It won't just be, oh, I want to be a nice person. I want to, you know, blah, blah. It's some really deep, intuitive sense. And it's important to let yourself really honor that. Because then it can serve, and it does serve. I know you all in some way have that, or you wouldn't still be here. It's the kind of, it can manifest as faith. It can manifest as courage. It can manifest as confidence. Or it can just manifest as uh, how you choose what to do. But I bet many of you, if not all of you, have had at least a couple moments here where you very seriously thought, I need to leave, like right now. There's no way that I can stay. And you do. I mean, you have so far. I've had that many times on retreat. And sometimes it's just a passing thought, just aversion. But sometimes, you know, it really has that hook. Like, this is really not the right time, or I'm too hopeless, whatever story you make up. So I'm assuming, not that you stay because you don't have a car and it's too much trouble to rebook your flight. So that's not deepest aspiration. We're not talking that. I'm talking when you really take a breath and you go, on some level, okay, this is really hard but what's really important, you know, in whatever way you say that to yourself. And you take a breath and you feel the next footstep, or you feel the next moment of aversion, or you go out and be with hearing the birds for a while and your mindfulness gets a bit balanced, but you hang out with it. It's not like you have to put a neon, I'm so great, I'm living my deepest purpose, but it informs your moment-to-moment choices. And sometimes when we've lost sight of it, then being able to call it up can help us, you know, just in little things and in big things. So the purpose, and again, I'm making the assumption here that we're coming from really the love of peace, of freedom, of compassion, whatever way it is for you. So that in that case, the purpose or the result or the aspiration you have is fulfilled by the way we meet each moment. That's back to the mindfulness of the motivation of of how we're meeting each moment. And that's what's really so inspiring because we affect one another in that way. So just give you a couple of uh, examples of that, how the purpose purpose really becomes the motivation or the moment-to-moment purity of motivation is actually the acting out of the purpose from people you've heard of. So one, Aung San Suu Kyi, who, as you know, has been 20 years at least, she's been in Burma as the kind of symbol of hope and courage for the people. But she said one time 
that she was really surprised that people think of her as an important person. And this is a quote. I suppose people think I'm extraordinary because I'm so simple they cannot believe it. I have very ordinary attitudes towards life. If I think there is something I should do in the name of justice or in the name of love, then I will do it. The motivation is its own reward. You never really know where we're going. She didn't go to Burma and said, now I will become the icon of democracy and hope for the Burmese people. You know? Just moment after moment of purity of motivation. Another example, uh, Martin Luther King, where, I mean, certainly he had an aspiration of integration and nonviolence, but a couple, just a couple of things I've read that he said. One is in terms of the whole um, ethos, the whole way of living and practicing nonviolence. He says, nonviolence doesn't just mean you don't hurt a person or kill a person. Nonviolence means you don't let yourself hate a person. It's really from motivation. And that sometimes after some of the worst uh, bombings where little girls were killed in that church in Birmingham, and he said, you know, I refuse to become bitter. Hatred must never become our motivation. And so some of the, the most inspiring acts, and both of those people I find tremendously inspiring to read about, to see, well, I mean, or just to see old speeches of, of uh, Dr. King, to see speeches of Aung San Suu Kyi now, or just to read about. And yes, it's, it's sort of what they've done or what they've achieved, but really what the, what the um, inspiration is, is that sincerity, that purity of motivation in action after action. It doesn't mean you don't make mistakes. It doesn't mean we don't blow it. And it doesn't mean that things turn out the way we want. But there's that depth of aspiration and then the moment-to-moment willingness to keep looking, to keep aligning. And it's a lifetime of work, a lifetime of Satisampajanya, mindfulness and full awareness. So last example, the Dalai Lama. It was always a great one, you know. To, but there was one interview a few years ago where some young Tibetan activists were talking to him and basically saying, you know, the new generation to the old generation. So as you know, he, had, he, he stepped down now as the head of the Tibetan state at the political wing. But up until recently, he's been both the spiritual head and the head of the, of the Tibetans in exile. And he's always you know, preached nonviolence towards China, coming nonviolence in all ways. And so these young Tibetan uh, activists were saying, basically, look, old man, it isn't working. You know, China is just destroying the Tibetan culture in what has been Tibet. It isn't working. There has to be another way. You know, your nonviolence isn't cutting it. And in this interview, he was basically, they said, I mean, I was reading it, I didn't see it, they said he was really weeping and saying, you know, maybe, maybe I've been wrong, maybe it isn't working, but I cannot be otherwise. I cannot abandon, you know, the sincerity of motivation. And that's, to me, so powerful, you know, because it's so... And who knows what's right or wrong? Who knows how anything's going to turn out? We don't. We can't. In fact, um, well, never mind, but 
totally running out of time. But you get a sense of how when we abandon the willingness to align ourselves with non-harming, with, um, with wisdom, with metta, with compassion in the moment, say, okay, but it's not working, let me jump to the result. We've lost it all, you know. The freedom of heart and mind is here now. It's not in some future result. And so when the question comes up, how do we continue to stay awake, to wake up, in the midst of our own actions, in the midst of a confusing world, just in the midst of our busyness, how do we find the motivation to continue to explore like this? To say, like the Dalai Lama, something isn't working and you have to keep looking at your motivation. How do we find the trust not to abandon? You know? Uh, Saito Tejaniya, who's been my teacher the last few years, he talks a lot about just cultivating this appreciation of mindfulness of awareness. It doesn't have to be focused, but the appreciation of it here in daily life. And so I'm sort of moving into. I'm not going to, there's no way I'm going to get all through, through all four clear comprehensions. I'm sort of moving into um, appropriateness and uh, the non-delusion in reality. But how do we continue to wake up? It comes to our motivation. He says, when we appreciate awareness enough, we notice what our mind's like when it's aware, our heart's like when we're aware, and we notice what it's like when it's not. And when we start to appreciate, when it's important enough to us that we appreciate awareness enough, that's when it's going to become our priority. And the way I phrase this is my language, not his. He would never use this language. It's me not when I, I used to practice because I wanted to know the truth. I wanted to. It was a deep yearning, but it was a want and a, a sense of me needing the truth and other. It, could, it also had great urgency, could bring a lot of energy, but it brought frustration, it brought separation, it brought incomplete feeling. But the shift is when we start to love the truth or love awareness. Like if when I go home, I need to be aware because I should be aware and I wasn't aware. I wasn't aware in that last hour and I should be. I should have been and I lost it and because I was, you know all of that. And even... We have a deep yearning for truth, but like I be aware because I want to have that better experience. I need to be aware. Tune back. Don't judge it. The mirror, not the judge, but tune back to what's the quality in the mind and heart. And that subtle or not so subtle yearning, wanting, fuels a subtle discontent and then the judging with yourself when it's not happening. But when we just love awareness... That opens into surrender. Surrender into what's happening in this moment. And awareness is right there. It's not about trying to make something else happen, but that faith, that trust that Aaron spoke about a couple of weeks ago. That, for me, when I really think of loving awareness, loving, yeah, I see my mind that wants to say, oh, let me just hide that statue. And then there's awareness of it. And the love of that, it trumps everything, you know? Because awareness can be with anything. And so the motivation and the willingness to notice the motivation comes to underlie everything. 
and it strengthens and deepens our practice and it supports our aspiration and keeps us going. I read years ago in a book, a Dharma book, I forget who wrote it now, but it stayed with me. The person said, in every moment of activity, we are committing to something. The question is, to what? Again, that's not with judgment, but that mirror. You know, every time we're doing something, that's a commitment, that motivation. So get interested in what? And so, you know, and... uh, when we first begin practice, we first begin our spiritual path, and we have really beautiful, maybe you do, maybe you don't, hopefully you did, beautiful ideas about how we want to be, and we're really inspired and lit up, and we also, of course, have goals and idealizations. But then our moment-to-moment way of being can seem really far from that, can it? Just in our little things. And for years, I was always kind of berating myself. You shouldn't watch TV. You shouldn't do this. It's not Dharma. Get back over here. You know, with this kind of, of negativity. Kind of. But if I just look without judging, in every moment of activity, you're committing to something. To what? So just look and see. It gets really interesting. In this moment, I'm committing to, I'm committing to dulling out and watching this really stupid TV show because I'm just too tired. Okay. No judging around it. Just look and see. Look and see. That was a lot easier than all the years of judging. And the more I do that, oh, look, I'm really committing to this. And after two minutes, my mind goes, I really don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) And I get up and leave. I hardly make it through stuff anymore when I'm on my own, especially. And it's not at all about judgment. I'm just, what am I committing to? And the mind starts to get dull, and I start to go, oh, it's not interesting. Get up and leave. It's no effort. It's not even renunciation. It's moving towards the pleasant, actually, moving towards wholesomeness. It becomes much, much easier, not more difficult. Okay, very quickly, it's important. The suitability, the second one, which is really looking at the larger situation. And this is really important because what it's really coming on is the fact that we, we're not separate beings. We can't act in isolation. Or another way of saying it is, nothing ever happens twice. Every situation's different. So the other morning when there were these questions about, you know, their energy and how do we affect each other with energy and the fact that this is me and that's you and we're two separate beings with our separate energy, that's just a concept. The fact is that Everything that's come together to be as it is, yata, bhuta, things as they have come to be in this moment, in this room, the effect of all the past conditions is just as it is. And anything any of us does affects everything. So right now I'm talking, if one of you got up and started screaming, it would have an effect, wouldn't it? Pretty much have an effect on everyone in this room. Different effects, because there'd be kind of different qualities going on in the different particular individual mind streams, but we all affect each other. And so skillful means, when we talk about in practice, when people come in and say, what's the skillful means? What's right effort? I want to know, just the list of right effort. We say, well, we always go, duh, right? I can't tell you because it depends. Some days it's like this. Some days it's like that. Should I take a walk? When should I do metta? When should I move away from the unpleasant and do metta, right? And you want a list. I mean, we get this question all the time. Say, well, one day, it depends. 
if what's going on in the mind. It's always different. Nothing ever happens twice. So some days the mind is really tight and contracted and you're trying to be aware and you're just getting more and more frustrated and the more you're aware, the more you get lost and you can see there's no mindfulness. You take a walk outside with seeing and hearing and the mind balances. There's more presence and it's useful. So the next day you think, I might get frustrated, so I better take a walk outside, right? And you take a walk outside, with, oh, look at the deer, oh, when am I going to feel this calm again? When is and you come back and you're all jacked up and you're filled with restlessness. and go, hmm, why didn't that work? As if it was the same situation. They're two completely different situations. This is a sense of suitability, of looking at what's going on in this mind and body, what's going on in the broader situation, if you're in a relationship interaction with someone else, as best as you can what's going on for them, but you'll never really know. Heck, we hardly know what's going on with us, do we? Never mind with the other person. But seeing, really, that we affect and we're affected by each other and all the conditions. Weather, for example. Have you noticed? I mean, it's been pretty nice weather. But when it's really like rainy, rainy, pouring weather, it often affects our minds. And then we think, well, it shouldn't. Why shouldn't it? (laughs) Like we're separate from the weather? I mean, we are the weather in some kind of a way. So really starting to see that, that's kind of clear comprehension of suitability, of interrelatedness. And the one point I want to make about that in terms of um, our practice here is this whole sense of of spiritual friend, of kalyanamitta, of realizing that just as um, unwholesome qualities can be contagious, for propaganda, for example, you know, if, if propaganda is really well done, putting out on the radio or on TV, I mean, or, or you know, um, bad things about somebody or good things about somebody, or you guys are being spared for at least a month, the presidential campaign, nothing but propaganda. But you know, Uh, The ad campaigns are kind of brilliant in the way of trying to twist stuff to get people's minds to think what they're trying to say. And we're all very influenced by each other. But just as much as the unwholesome influences, so does the wholesome. So when I talked about generosity the other night, and that point I was trying to make about how the goodness, the happiness, is contagious. You know, it goes both ways. In all aspects of life, it's like that. Why does hearing about Suchi or Dr. King or the Dalai Lama, why does it? Or I think it came up in the questions the other morning. Why does that inspire us? Because it opens up those same wholesome qualities in our own mind and heart, in our own mind stream. And so when the Buddha made a big point of um, n- note who, you, who you hang out with, you know, if you have a choice, hanging out with wise people, with wholesome people, because we affect each other. But also recognizing that often you're going to be the person who's the spiritual friend, the Kalyanamitta. And you're the one who, simply by your willingness to be present with yourself with integrity, by your willingness to see if you do something unkind or stupid or greedy, we go, oh, wow, look at that, you know? That's greed. And then there's a, a wholesomeness that comes in that brightness of your sincere intention, your generosity, your morality, 
your love of awareness, your wanting to cultivate compassion, even when we're not 100%. That affects people. And it's not about going out and proclaiming, now I am, you know, the Kuan Yin of the ages, and let me show you. <laughs> it's just, just more by who we are, moment to moment, who we are, in really small ways. And that's different for each of us. Okay, I'll just end with one quick story. I didn't get to a lot. About in, in, um, maybe some of you have seen this. A movie that was made, I think it was called Blessings, about some Western women who went with Sogni Rinpoche, the Tibetan Lama, back to Tibet to visit some nuns in an area called Nanchen. And it was about these nuns of Nanchen. So they had been uh, Tibetan nuns there for many years, and maybe 20 years ago, after the Cultural Revolution in China, where many nunneries and monasteries were really destroyed. Nuns and monks were either killed or they had to leave. And this, um, these nuns, there's quite a few of them living in caves or in this big nunnery way, uh, way up in the hills of Tibet. They were disbanded and they had to leave. And so first they had this sincerity their, their greater aspiration that most of them, they didn't want to stop being nuns. They were really committed to a life of being nuns and to their spiritual awakening. They couldn't live there. But there wasn't, they didn't all respond in the same way, although they all had this deep aspiration. Some of them um, just stopped being nuns. Some of them went back to live with their families, uh, but they were like, thought of themselves as secret nuns. You know, they had to wear their regular clothes and act normal, but in their heart, they were being secret nuns, living a normal life. Some of them, a few of them, went way, way off and hid in caves, way up high, and had for these 20 years really lives of great privation and starvation and difficulty. So they all responded in different ways. And then when Sony and these women went back, I guess a few years ago, they had been allowed to start coming out again. And so these women were starting, not all of them, but the ones that were still alive, who hadn't given it up, were coming back together. They were rebuilding this nunnery, you know, like stone by stone, dragging the stones just with their bare hands up, you know, these incredible hills and building the nunnery again and coming out. And so they'd all had different ways that were suitable for their particular temperaments, their particular way of being. There wasn't one right way but they each honored their deep aspiration. And then when they had the chance to come back together in that form, they did. I just want to say that sense of our aspiration, we don't know how it's going to show up. The suitability for our own particular circumstance, there's no one to compare it to. We really have to honor it with our own wisdom and our own integrity and trust that. Trust your own love of freedom, of compassion of awareness, whatever word works for you. And moment by moment, holding to that. And you don't know what kind of effect you're going to have on others. You may be doing something where you interact with a lot of people, or you may live in a way that is really reclusive. So this, re- this ended, this movie, at the very end of the movie, they climbed way, way up to visit the oldest nun, of those nuns. She looked about 120. I don't know how old she really was. I mean, maybe she was 40. She had a really hard life, but she really old. Way up high. And they had said, you know, she's the most awakened, the most enlightened of them. 
So she was, couldn't really walk. She just lay in her little bed in this little hut way, way, way up there all day and night. And she said she just spent the day and the night spinning her prayer wheel. And she said, all I do is just send out my love and prayers for the happiness and well-being and awakening of all beings. And that's just how she spends her days and nights doing that. It's amazing, huh? Amazing, a mind like that. And so in some way, it touches us when we hear about it, but who knows how it touches us when we don't hear about it. So there's a million, uh, seven billion different ways to show up, to follow uh, the deepest aspiration, and seven million different ways it'll manifest. But the deep devotion, the deep trust, to the moment-to-moment willingness that, to meet this moment with full awareness, knowing what we're doing in our mind, knowing what we're doing in our body, and knowing that we all affect one another, and meeting that as with, with love, not with fear. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thanks for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.